Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. The Cathy O'Connor Podcast. See, we now start reminiscing. I don't know when to stop. Oh, understandable. Um, Great memories. So, so a month later, I was back again in the studio, Bradley's Barn, and Harold Bradley, who was at that point my producer, and his brother produced Patsy Klein, and I was in the studio that she recorded in, and there was a connection already before this. And Johnny arrived, uh, not dressed in black, he had a khaki coloured jacket, which he wore when he wasn't being Johnny Cash, and he arrived in an open top little jeep driving himself, and he came into the studio, and see, this was only my third time to meet him, and so now all of a sudden I was going to be singing with them, and I wanted to be, you know, the best I could possibly be, but I was completely intimidated, I mean, completely overwhelmed, so I went to the bathroom, and I brought my makeup bag with me, and I don't know what, how long went by, but Harold Bradley, um, knocked on the door and said, are you going to stay here all day? Are you going to come out here and cut a record with Johnny Cash? <laughs> so I must have been in there a long time. <laughs> and when I came out, Johnny was sitting on a couch and he was eating a yogurt. I still have the yogurt card and spoon. And he was eating a yogurt and he gave me a signed copy um, dedicated to me of his first son album. And I gave him um, a, a, a statue, um, a brass statue, sorry, a, um, not brass. Anyway, some sort of a metal statue of uh, an Irish hero, mm. and he loved that. And then we went to record Woodcarver. Now he 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 was a great joker and kidding around. So he did a lot of kidding around. Mostly, I said to put me at ease anyway, to before we did anything. And by the time we got to recording it, I was much more relaxed, and I was very aware that I had to do my best because this was going to be a, a legacy of some kind. But he never told me that he was going to talk the last verse. So I was standing in front of him. The, the video you see, we're actually sitting down. That, that was done after. So I was standing in front of him in the booth and he was staring right at me, as you said. And he said, I can carve you your house. I can carve you your man. Well, when I didn't flop on the floor, when I didn't faint, you know, this man, it was like John Wayne looking at you, Elvis looking at you. And it was just, I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. Never forget it, and mm-hmm. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Yeah, yeah. But and I suppose it's a testament to the connection. Do you know just the connection that you, that that the pair of you had? Do you know? It's just that, that kind of honesty. Why I think he liked me yeah. because I was very honest, mm-hmm. and I I did I wasn't pretentious, mm-hmm. and I think he liked me because anything he asked me, I told him the truth, mm-hmm. and even he was surrounded by not his family. But he was surrounded business-wise by an awful lot of yes people who catered to his every need. And no matter what he asked them, they gave him the right answer that he wanted to hear. And I didn't do that. And I remember one time him asking me, I, I found him looking at him from afar on a few occasions to be a very sad figure of a person, that he was very lonely because he was so famous. He couldn't just be himself. And I remember him asking me, and would you believe it, it was in Cavan, in Steve Russell. He was doing a concert and I was on the show. And we were sitting in a holding room waiting to go on. 
he was going on first, obviously, and I was waiting to go on and do woodcover. And he said, will you, he said, Sandy, will you be my friend? Almost a childlike thing to ask. And I looked at him and I said, it's very, very difficult for anybody to be your friend. And he looked at me kind of shocked. And he said, why would you say that? And I said, you're surrounded by so many people, so many people, and a lot of them are not your friends. And I think he appreciated me saying that, that, you know, he knew he was a very intelligent, well-read man. He got up at six o'clock every morning and read every newspaper. You know, he could associate with presidents. You know, Billy Graham was one of his best friends. So he was, he was a very intelligent man. I wasn't well-read or well-educated, but I was honest. Mm -hmm. you know? And I suppose because you, you toured with him, um, I guess you saw all sides of that. So it wasn't just the kind of the recording times or like you no, were, you were observing that, him, know participating. Him. Yeah. You know, so you family. got him. Yes, exactly. I every which know, way. Yeah. You know, obviously, there are things, you know, that they would have seen in me and, and would have observed in me that they wouldn't share with anybody. Um, and there are things that I would have shared in their company that I wouldn't share with anybody. But they're no different to any family. They're nothing different to any family. He said to me one time, and I think I think it's on uh, film because it was on, I think it's in the documentary that RTE did. He said my biggest quality was humility. And he said if you have humility, you have everything. And he had that in spades, and so did Jim. And Sandy, I suppose it brings um, me on to, uh, I suppose, just these pivotal times in your life. And obviously, of course, the recording of Patsy Cline's Crazy in 1989 mm -hmm. uh, was absolutely one of um, those. Absolutely. Uh, and tell me, because again, I suppose that, that was another layered relationship just in terms of your friendship with her husband, Charlie and Dick, and her, her daughter, and getting to yeah. know all of, of the extended family yeah. and community and as well. So what, 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 what did you, as an interpreter of her songs, what, what are you bringing to the table? I suppose, like you've said, the blessing for me in that, again, was that I knew Patsy's husband, Charlie, late husband Charlie, and her daughter Julie, her producer Owen Bradley, who owned Bradley's Barn, her guitar player was my producer, and the, all of the band that I used for my first couple of albums in Nashville, all but one musician were her band, her musicians, her studio band. So that was before I recorded Crazy, Patsy Klein songs. So I already had created a friendship with them as Sandy Kelly, not a Patsy Klein clone wannabe, because trust me, there are thousands and thousands of them, especially in America. So they, they knew me as me. And so I had that foundation. So when I had the success with Crazy, I was able to go back to Charlie and uh, Harold Bradley and Owen Bradley, all of those people, and research the woman through the people she loved and worked with. And say George Hamilton IV, who was the narrator of the Patsy Klein show, I picked him to do it, he toured with her. So I had a, a, a cocoon, if you like, of people that spent time with her and had the essence of the woman, because I was never going to be Patsy Cline on any stage. All I could do, as George Hamilton said, was conjure her up by using my own experience as a, a woman, singer, a woman, a mother, a wife. She was all of that. The, the, the hardships and the, 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 the hard 
path it is for a woman in show business and how hard it is to be a wife and a mother. So I, I, I said to myself, hold on, I've experienced all of the things she experienced. I'm just not her. So I got the essence of her. I went and spent, oh my God, I don't know, many visits to her hometown. Uh, I met her mother, who wouldn't entertain me for five minutes. Her mother, who's sadly now passed away, became very bitter and lived a very lonely life. But I went back to where she worked, the drugstore where she worked before she sang at night, the radio station she worked in. I went into the archives at the Hall of Fame um, in Nashville and got access to all of the photographs from the crash scene. I went to the crash site where the plane crashed. So when I was walking on the stage to do Patsy Klein, I didn't read it out of a book. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie? Doro, make friends with innovation. Uh, and I remember um, an extraordinary, you're writing about an extraordinary experience you had. It was in the UK where I think there was a chapel or something at the top of the house. The very top, I'll never forget that. To tell us about that. That was, I mean, I'm not that kind of person, I have to say that. I'm not an airy fairy person. But there have been a few instances with Patsy. You know, I remember, sorry to go back a little bit, but the day I was recording Crazy that I didn't want to. And I was in the little small booth in, I think, Windmill. And I remember saying, in jest, because I had no money. My career, although I'd had, I was recording for years, everything was at an all-time low. Record company going to drop me. And I remember looking up to the sky and saying, look, Patsy, you don't exactly need this song where you are right now. Could I have this song for six months? I, I don't know why I even said that. And look what happened after that. And the night before I met Johnny Cash, I was invited to a prayer meeting. I said, no, thank you. I'm not one of those people, including the man, which is near me. And the priest said to me, he said, I'm not one of those people either, but you should go to that prayer meeting. So I went to the prayer meeting and I left again, but I felt weird. And the next day, Johnny Cash rang me. So that's why there's a the thing about the power of prayer in the book. Now, if you forward wind it to that theater, I was in the theater and uh, I was singing crazy, and I, I, like I said, I don't sing, I never sat down and copied Patsy Klein's. I sing those songs like I sing them, with some of her vocal mannerisms, you know, to make it a little bit authentic. But I was singing crazy, and it got to the second last line. This is a fully-fledged musical with 25 people on stage, and it wasn't my, nothing came out of my mouth. It was her. And I don't even sing that line like that. It was the way she's, it was like she was saying, you know, excuse me, like in, because she was very funny as well and always playing jokes on people as well. And when that happened, and I, and like I said, I'm not that kind of person, when that happened, I just went, into, it was a finale, but I just went into total shock and I left the stage, but people thought, show over, that's why she's leaving, but I didn't come back. And I went to my dressing room and when George went after me, George Hammond on the phone, and when he came in the dressing room, apparently I was on my knees praying. <laughs> Oh my God, oh my God, on the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. And he said, Sandy, you've got to go back out on the stage and do the finale. So he got me back out on the stage, then the finale, he said, we'll go to the, there was an old, the oldest theatre in Britain, I think. And there was an old room upstairs that had an altar in it and a Bible. And George brought me up there and we prayed. And that was it, I put that to bed then. But that was the weirdest thing 
But you have to say, if you think of my association with Patsy Klein and all the years I was singing and trying before that, and look what happened when I had that connection with Crazy. Like, I mean, I don't know what I believe in, but there has to be something about that. That's not a coincidence. And then I go on to record Crazy with Willie Nelson, who wrote Crazy. And I'm in the studio recording Crazy with Patsy Klein's husband standing there, Owen Bradley playing the piano who produced the original version of Crazy, and and myself and my producer, Howard Bradley. Those things just don't happen to somebody who lives on the, the west coast of Ireland with no social media or TikTok. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, absolutely. All I had was top tick. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, one of the, the quotes that really stuck out for me in your book, and I, and I quote this, it has never been about stardom for me, but always about getting the work. And I think one of the, again, why I just regard you as, as so courageous and gutsy is that uh, looking at the outside of, of you know, at times when your career would have been flying and all that kind of stuff, there still was the price that you, you were paying as a mother, leaving your family and all those kind of things, the decisions you had to make time and time again, but also that you were earning the money and, and it wasn't there. So that, That's that, my regret. That's my big mm. regret, is the time spent away from my children. I do get to spend that with my grandson now, which is great, Frank Johan. But it's, isn't it amazing to think, and, and, and I've always been an honest person, and it's easy to tell the truth because you don't have to have a good memory, you know, you don't have to remember the lie. But isn't it amazing to think that I was living in the Towers and Juries and doing that TV series, which I loved every moment of. 800,000 people. Is the RT one? My own series. Sandy, yes. Yeah. CFRG, yeah. And I was singing with every star on the planet mm-hmm. was being brought in. The concert orchestra, 26-piece studio band, and I could not afford to put oil in my central evening. And it's like, I couldn't go to the shop because I was so famous. If I parked my car in the street, people would come over to the windows. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't, and I could not afford to heat my house. So that was the reality of the life I was living. And I remember saying to my husband, Mike, I can't afford to be this famous. Because you, if you're famous, you know, whatever that is, you, you're expected to present yourself in a certain way. You know, you're expected to be a certain person. And I, I, I always have been and always will be the showman's daughter. That's who I am. I'm not about, uh, the, you know, I saw bright lights when I was in a nappy. It's not about that for me. It's always been about paying the bills, supporting the family, and that's fine. I, and, and as I sit in front of you today, that's still what it's about. You know, um, I, I wrote a book, I've recorded a new album, which I want to tell you about, and I'm so excited about, but it's still about paying the bills, you know. Absolutely. Um, and so let's get on to the new album, uh, Leaving It All Behind. Um, so tell me about a very particular title, my son Willie Kelly and John Carter Cash, Johnny and June's son, whom would have toured with us a lot, and those guys would have known each my son and John Carter would have known each other very well. And so they got together because I didn't want to record. I haven't recorded in thirty years. And I didn't certainly didn't want to write a book. And so they got together with this project that I would write a book as a legacy for my grandson to put the old guilt trip on me and that I would record an album that reflected where I am in my life today as a woman and 
my life's journey. Um, so the songs on the album reflect some of the stories in the book. And going back to Cash Cabin was difficult because that's where Johnny, you know, did all his last recordings. And that's where we spent so many happy times. Now so many people are gone. Harold Bradley, my sister, Johnny, June, um, so many people that I, I kind of, in a way, was, I think, in denial. So they talked me into going back uh, with these wonderful songs um, that there again are, you know, people hopefully will relate to in their own way. And I went back and today, I, I'm sure you're aware that today when people record albums, you go to the studio and you don't always even see a musician, I'm told. It's all done and you just go in and sing. Well, to me, that's, you know, my album is not perfect and the imperfections are what's real about it. Everybody was there. We went back four times and I, I funded it myself, myself and my son. And we had like, because of, of Johnny Cash and his son, uh, we had Marty Stewart, we had Garth Brooks, guitar player. Everybody who was the best musician was in that room, the same time as me. And it was like a gig. So they played, they talked, said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you play? Hey, why don't you play it like that? And we took forever to, to put the put it together. And we, I think it was Led Zeppelin's harmonica player. Like, it was just weird. It was all these weird, funky people, arty people. And I just sang. And I cried a lot. They didn't know anything about why I was crying, but I, I sat in Johnny's rocking chair, the very same rocking chair, would you believe, that he sat in, in his house the night that he gave me wood carving. Because I said to John Carter Casher, sitting in, in the rocking chair, cause, just because it was comfortable, and I seen he, he, JC was carved out on it, and written was carved out the man in white. Because Johnny used to carve stuff as well, wood carver of course, and it said the man in white. And I said to John Carter, is this Johnny's rocking chair? And he said, yeah, that's Dad's. And I said, is this the one that was in your kitchen? And he said, yeah. And I said, that is so unbelievable that I'm sitting in that chair today. Because the last song they brought out to put on the album was Woodcarver. They decided to bring out, they brought out the Willie Nelson track and they brought out Woodcarver. So John Carter and, and Willie, unbeknownst to me, had decided to update, if you like, musically and make more bluegrassy the Willie Nelson track against the wind that duet with me. So they went to the vault and they took out the original tape of Woodcarver, which I'd not seen since we'd recorded it. And they brought it and uh, they put it up on, on the on the reel to reel to play it, to, to pass it on to the desk. And they were going to, they had Marty Stewart and all these wonderful musicians uh, all listening to it. And to them, this was like uh, very emotional for John Carter and for me, of course, and for the musicians, because there were people playing on this track that were their heroes. These were the new guys in town, the new guns in town, listening to their heroes who had played on Woodcarver. And they were replacing um, the original music with a bluegrass version. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. Then, as they put the track up, I realized that Johnny was messing around and all this talking was going on. Now, honestly, I know Johnny Cash and I never had an affair. Everybody's asked me that, but we didn't. But he used to always be, you know, flirting and messing about. I'm sure all this chat was on the thing, on the on the reel to reel, and there was his son and my son 
listening to it, I thought, oh my God, what, what, what did we say back in 1989? <laughs> but so it was really funny. Yeah. And it was, it, we cried and we laughed. They recreated a brand new track, kept the original voices, my voice and his. Nice. Uh, and you wrote in the book, um, I revisit the ghosts of Nashville and make some new music and my heart will be lighter. Was your heart lighter? As I left, people asked me two things. They asked me if I feel better since I wrote the book. No, I don't. Um, I think it's going to take time. Um, but I've turned a corner. I've definitely turned a corner. And when I left the studio that day, I was crying. And it was just myself and William. Everybody else had gone. Um, and the engineer. And we got in the car and was looking back and Willie said, why are you crying? And I said, and I feel a lot of different emotions. And I feel sad, but I feel unshackled. I feel unshackled, unshackled from my grief and denial and the things I was, the reasons why I was afraid of coming back. And I was afraid of singing. I was afraid that maybe I didn't sing that well anymore, you know, because it's a long time since I sang. And, you know, I used to be a pretty good singer, so I thought, you know, maybe I can't sing good anymore. Because the studio lays you bare vocally. Mm -hmm. But I was happy with, with how I sang. Mm -hmm. A more mature voice, mm -hmm. an older woman, mm -hmm. um, singing honest songs. And in a way, I felt like, you know, a different version of, this is a very, putting a very high high tag on myself, a little bit Joni Mitchell kind of, you know, mm -hmm. vibe. And, and I, I felt unshackled. Uh, and, uh, and what a marvellous word, uh, in a way, for, to, uh, for the future, for another phase of your incredibly interesting life and um, and I think it's it's marvelous you know that that having that you are having such a dynamic life and you continue to have that so of course you have a new tour which is starting 2024 all over the country I gather all over the country and you know I just can I, I'll be totally honest with you I'm amazed that people still care or people are still interested because I haven't done anything in so long. I've been working all the time, but I haven't done anything high profile like, like talking to you today. And this is my first podcast, so I'm loving it. Um, so, and so to have a tour coming up in, in 2024 in March nationwide, we'll be at the concert hall in Dublin on March 11th, and I haven't played there in a long time. Um, and I have a brand new band. Um, delighted to say it's a super cool band. It's not your, it's not your usual band. It's sort of very arty, and uh, the show will be a brand new show with stories, um, a lot of humor, um, some of the serious stuff too, songs from the past, mm -hmm. songs that are current, and so much. Which this here's something I never thought I'd hear myself saying. I'll be seventy in February. That's not what I wasn't. What I wasn't going to hear myself saying. I'm excited for the future. Excited, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose all of the investment, all of the talent, the skill set, the knowledge that you have about being a performer, about putting your heart and soul always into everything that you do, that 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 of course there would be an audience welcoming it's, it's that because you know, it's it's authentic, Sandy. And I, I suppose in this world of performance in mm. a different way yeah there's no connection there's, there you go and yeah. you know although i'm terrified to go on stage mm. when i'm beside the stage and, and waiting i'm terrified mm. and sick mm. the minute i put my foot on the stage mm. i'm at home mm. because that's where i always was 
And when you look, I was working last night, when you look into the eyes of the people looking up at you, you know that you're amongst friends genuinely and they're there for you. And it's a wonderful feeling. And no matter how you feel going on stage or what trouble you might be bringing with you, you know, from your daily life, it's, it's all gone by the time you set your foot back off the stage. And again, I suppose that's, you know, part of why I just think you're so gutsy and courageous is that no matter what was going on in your, your life, you stood up to the plate and here's my, here's my best performance. Well, my um, grandfather, when I was three years old, Dusky Dan, he, he used to sit me on his knee and he'd say, you never, ever, ever bring your troubles on the stage. I was three. If you put your foot on that stage, you go out there and you give your best performance because those people spend their hard-earned money and sometimes they didn't always spend money. He'd be on the door with a, a leather bag and he'd be taking fish if we were knackered, taking eggs, a live chicken one day that we had to run around and catch. That He would take food because if people didn't have money. And he said, people bring what they can or their hard-earned money and you go out there and you entertain them. And that's why I have no tolerance for people who go on stage. I've, I know I'm old school and go out there and talk about whether they have a cough or they were at the doctor. Or whatever. But then, you know, don't put your foot on the stage. That's not a place for that. And that, I know that's old fashioned, but that's the way it's, it's entertainment. You don't go up there to talk about what happened to you. Do, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, I suppose that's why, Sandy, you have endured for all these years and will continue to thrive Thank and you. I wish you the very best of luck. And would, afternoon. Of course, and would encourage all our listeners to go out, buy the tickets um, to the show and of course to O'Brien Press where you'll find her really interesting new book. And Kelly uh, Note for the album and sandykellymusic.com for the tour. You heard it from her. <laughs> And will phone poke a new wet, and will knappy no fum nis orge wet. Nis eskalehusaj, faker no phone intakata gwin, on cho, egg daro, and von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glinna, agus taskina, tarod egen gogachtina. Tanismo olis egg daro.com.